Imagine you are before a judge. He is robed with honor and authority. All rise as he walks from his chamber to the bench. He sits and before him is a gavel, that instrument of order which silences a room. There is no jury here. Only one is righteous enough to determine those who have broken the law and the sentence they receive. He is separated by a desk and the file full of charges. The arraignment begins. You sit as defendant and listen as the judge reads the charges. There is no mistake, no omission. From the greatest trespass to the least, you are guilty. The evidence is too clear, the witnesses too loud. The judge shuts the file and delivers his verdict. Guilty. The bailiff comes to chain and usher, but it is not for you. It is another. Who is this man? Why should he bear my crime, my guilt, my blame? Why is he led away to bear my sentence, my punishment, my shame? He is the Holy One, the Word made flesh, his perfection charged to me. So he could take my trespasses and bear my penalty, his righteousness exchanged for the deeds that I have done. He wears my prison clothes and chains so I could know his love. Here I stand. I'm free. Not because of what I've done, but because I've seen and tasted of the Savior and his love. Justice is served and love is shared. Both held within our God. He offers hope and takes despair. He is the just and justifier. Justification is ours in Christ. And now we are the righteous. Not because our deeds were good, but because God credited his righteousness. Well, we should probably pray after that. <laughs> God... The gospel message uh, throughout the book of Romans, um, just different perspectives, um, is so freeing. And so, Father, I pray that this morning as we uh, consider the gospel uh, from a courtroom perspective, I, I just pray that um, you would communicate your word clearly as to what it means that you're the judge, that we are guilty but someone else took our punishment. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name. Amen. So this morning we're continuing through our series in the book of Romans called Salvation Spaces. Uh, we've been describing concepts in Romans by connecting them to a space, uh, like the throne room of God, uh, or last week the altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle. And today we're going to look at what Paul says about the concept of justification. Uh, which is a legal term that fits in the space of a courtroom. And so that's the image we're going to be using today. And I don't know about you, but I haven't spent very much time in court in my life. Um, I had some speeding tickets when I was in high school, but uh, that's about it in terms of court for me. And, uh, and I feel like though we've seen enough courtrooms on TV and in movies um, that we kind of understand the gist of how things work 
in court. There's a judge uh, maintaining order, passing sentences. Uh, usually there's lawyers for the prosecution and for the defense. They argue the case, uh, often in front of a jury who's supposed to consider the evidence and decide on a verdict. Uh, there's a defendant in the courtroom who's uh, accused of wrongdoing and witnesses are called to, to testify to the facts of the case that they've seen and heard uh, and understand. And uh, I, I feel like there have been a number of high-profile public court cases in my lifetime. Um, and just kind of thinking back through them and the impact that they've had on our culture, I feel like they've offered us some important wisdom, some lasting wisdom. Wisdom like, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. You guys remember that? <laughs> um, or, 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 or just like quick-hitting terms. Like that we recently incorporated the term megapint into our uh, cultural vocabulary. Um, and everybody understands now what it means to, to say objection hearsay, right? <laughs> I also remember quite a few lawsuits uh, that seemed ridiculous as I think back through uh, my life, uh, but they kind of worked out uh, in the end for the, the person bringing the suit. Like, I don't know if you guys remember the woman who sued McDonald's and got almost $3 million because she spilled hot coffee on herself and there was no warning that said it would be hot. Uh, and so McDonald's was held responsible to the tune of $2.9 million. Or, uh, and I remember that one, but some of these other ones I looked up this week, I'm like, well, I don't remember that happening. There was a group that sued Red Bull. Do you guys remember this? A group sued Red Bull for false advertising because it didn't give them wings. $640,000 Red Bull paid. What about, <laughs> I love this one, <laughs> the man who accused his wife of cheating on him because their newborn baby was, quote, incredibly ugly. <laughs> and in court, in court, she admitted that she had had some plastic surgery before they met. And so he won the case on account of fraud, that she defrauded him by not disclosing her looks. She had to pay him $120,000 for ugly baby. Or uh, this one happened when I was in high school. This one was in, in, uh, in Europe. A woman sued the TV weatherman for predicting sunny weather when it actually then rained. Um, because she, she argued that it caused her to get sick and miss work because she wasn't prepared for rain that day. They settled out of court. She got $1,000 and an, and a public apology from the weatherman as a, as a court settlement judgment in that case. And those are funny because we understand that the courtroom is supposed to be a place where justice is served, even though a lot of times we look at it and I'm like, well, that's just a ridiculous use of the justice system. But the courtroom is supposed to be a place where justice is served, where the innocent are redeemed, the guilty are punished. There's a standard in the courtroom. It's the law. In the courtroom, the law is what's important. There's a verdict in the courtroom. A judgment is rendered whether the defendant is, is innocent or guilty of breaking the law, of, of violating the standard. And there's a sentence when someone's guilty. There's a punishment that the judge passes down that justice dictates the punishment should, should fit the crime. We, you know, the judge is, we don't like it when the judge overpunishes, but we don't really like it when the judge underpunishes either. It should fit. It should be you know, commensurate with the, with the crime. And in the book of Romans, Paul builds a case uh, like he's in a court, like he's a lawyer. 
And he starts in, in Romans chapter 2, uh, and, and he starts, I think, with the important idea of clarifying the standard of judgment in God's courtroom. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 2. Um, Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So God's judgment is based on truth. It is just. Considering all the facts, looking at all the evidence in the case, it's also impartial. Paul spends a lot of time at the beginning of Romans laying this groundwork that it's impartial, doesn't show favoritism to one group or one person over another. In Romans, it was Jews and Gentiles, and, and Paul was establishing God's not going to show favoritism to the, to the Jewish people just because they're his chosen people of the Old Testament, that we're all under the same standard. The, the Jewish tradition in Paul's time, uh, just kind of the idea was that Gentiles were idolaters and sinners. They were headed for hell, but Jews were God's people. They, they were loved by God even when they sinned. Uh, God just would kind of overlook it because they were his chosen people. Um, it's kind of like uh, in, in the, the court shows when you watch on TV where, where we all know the person's guilty. Like everyone in the show, everyone in the court, like it's like, well, why are we, why are we even like, this isn't even going to be a f compelling storyline in this show. But then we find out that they have like a special status, like diplomatic immunity. Isn't that like, that's always like the trope, isn't it? That they, oh, their diplomatic community, they're going to go get away with murder because they can't be prosecuted. And that's what the Jews thought they had. They thought they had diplomatic immunity with God, that they could just sin and get away with it because they were God's chosen people. They could get off on this technicality. They, they were mistaking God's kindness and God's patience for permission to sin and get away with it. That like, well, God, God will forgive me. God's kind. He's patient. I, I'll do what I want. Um, they were using his kindness as an excuse to ignore their own sin, and then even further, to judge other people for theirs. Um, God's kind, so he, my sin's ignored, but I'm going to hyper-focus on yours. And we do this too, by the way. We, we do things we know we shouldn't do, but God doesn't punish us right away, and so we start comparing ourselves to other people to convince ourselves that we're not so bad after all, uh, that we deserve God's kindness and we deserve God's patience. They don't. They don't deserve it. I mean, like, we judge them hardcore, but, I mean, we deserve God to be patient with us. 
And the reality is what Paul's getting at in Romans is we all deserve judgment. None of us deserve God's kindness or patience because God will repay each person according to what they have done, Paul says. He's clear on this point. God doesn't judge us based on what we think or what we believe, not on what we say or what we promise. His judgment is based on what we do, not what we know, not what group we belong to. If we do evil, our judge will punish. If we do good, our judge will reward. It's fairly straightforward. Hearing the law doesn't mean anything if we don't obey the law. And, And Paul, before we get too deep in the weeds, Paul is not saying that we can be saved by doing enough good things. There's other places in the Bible where Paul and and James, people are clear about this. Paul is just giving us the standard for judgment that God will use to judge everyone fairly and impartially, our works. Whether or not we've obeyed the law that God has handed down is the standard in, in this courtroom. People who do evil suffer wrath. People who persist in doing good gain eternal life. And and in Romans 1, in the chapter before this, Paul uh, accuses the Gentiles of being unrighteous, that they turned their backs on God and and they've been living however they wanted. And then in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention on on the Jews and he accuses them not of being unrighteous, but of being self-righteous, justifying their own sin by comparing it to others and judging them. And Paul says being self-righteous is not any better than being unrighteous. Since God's standard is not do better than the person next to you. Judging other people by comparing their sins to yours so that you feel better about yourself doesn't make you right with God. It just makes you obnoxious to everyone around you. So if God's standard for judgment is works, if God's standard is do the right thing, Is it possible for us to do enough good things to earn a verdict in this court of innocent? We're going to jump to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9, pick up Paul's argument here. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so the verdict is in. We are all guilty. There's no one righteous or innocent, no one who does good, Paul strings together a whole bunch of quotes from the Old Testament that incidentally, all of these Old Testament quotes that Paul used in the Old Testament are referring to Gentiles. 
And, and these are some of the source of Jewish pride. That's like, look at those people. There's none of them who are good. None of them that does right. They're terrible. And Paul reapplies these Old Testament quotes to the Jews also to say, no, 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 this is humanity. This isn't just one group or another. We're all in the same boat. None of us is righteous. None of us does good. And he's proving this point that, that even the Jews, even God's chosen people are condemned by their actions, by what they've done and not done. And the point I think that he's making is if God's chosen people are guilty, the people that God revealed himself to uh, over thousands of years in the Old Testament, the people that, you know, that Moses came down with, the Ten Commandments, God gave the law, God walked with these people and, and, and gave them chance after chance after chance. If God's chosen people are guilty, what hope do the rest of us have? No one can be declared righteous by observing the law because no one can fully obey the law. And we're led to ask, why not? Why is this so hard? Why is it so difficult for us to just do what God tells us to do? Why can't we just do that? Right? And I think the answer is in verse 9 of, of Romans 3, what we just read. We're all under the power of sin. That's more than saying that we all commit sins. That's true. We do. But what Paul is saying is more than that, uh, as if doing wrong things is just like an occasional problem that we have, right? It's more than that. It's even more than saying that we're all sinners, that, that sin is the common struggle for all of humanity. That's true, too. We are all sinners, and it is a common struggle for all of humanity. But what Paul is saying in verse 9 is, is more than that. Paul says we're all under the power of sin. See, this is language of dominion. This is language of slavery. You know, Paul, Paul says that later in Romans, that we're slaves to sin, that we used to be slaves to sin, right? This is language of slavery. Our condition is worse than we thought it was. It goes beyond that we just make bad choices. It goes beyond that we're trapped in bad habits or even addictions. The problem is that people, that all people, are helpless prisoners of a sin nature, and the Bible teaches that, that we are responsible for our individual sinful choices. That's true. But the Bible also teaches that our individual sin choices are only symptoms of the grip of evil on the human race. So people sin willingly, but inevitably. Sin is freely chosen, but there's a gravitational pull to sin, that we're, we're powerless to, to resist completely. In other words, humanity is not free to not sin. That double negative was on purpose. <laughs> Trying to obey God's law won't save us, but it, it does wake us up to the reality we face, that sin has taken us captive. God's law is kind of like the red pill in the matrix, when we take it, we see that we're slaves. We see the world for what it is. We see that we need to be rescued, that things aren't what we thought they were. They're much worse. 
The whole world is held accountable to God. The whole world deserves God's wrath, the Bible says. No one will be declared righteous by observing the law. The law gives us knowledge of sin, but not rescue from sin. The law gives us our diagnosis, but it doesn't give us any cure. And I think that's because we're not really ready to hear and accept the judge's sentence until we stop trying to defend ourselves. We're not really ready to hear and accept the judge's sentence until we stop trying to make our own case. We stop trying to compare ourselves to other people to demonstrate we're not as bad, and we just plead guilty. That's when we're finally ready to hear from the judge. And I think the law is, is an important thing for us to lead us to the, pl- to the place where we realize the only thing I can do is to plead guilty. The law shows me that. The law shows me how far short I fall. The only thing I can do is plead guilty. Verse 19, the, the, right at the end of what we read, it makes me think of a defendant just closing his mouth with nothing else to say after the prosecuting attorney finishes her argument. And at this point, the defendant recognizes he's at the mercy of the judge. There's nothing more he can do. The case is going to go where it's going to go. The judge is ready to pronounce sentence. But when we finally admit that we're guilty, we stop trying to defend ourselves by comparison and by judging other people. We hear a sentence that's completely shocking. It's not justice, it's not getting what we deserve, it's grace. It's getting what we don't deserve. Paul continues in verse 21 of Romans 3, but now, now hang on, have you ever heard two words more beautiful in all of your life? But now? That Paul spends almost three full chapters describing hopelessness, This state that we have where we are guilty, where we deserve wrath and punishment, but now, like it's not over. There's something else. There's something we hadn't considered. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Justification is what a judge does when he declares a defendant innocent. By ourselves, apart from Jesus, we're helpless slaves of sin. We're held captive by a power that that we can never overcome. And God can't just ignore our sin and pretend like we're not guilty. The verdict is passed. Our sin, we are guilty, our sin has to be paid for. And it is paid for, just not by us. Steve talked about this last week when he preached about uh, the the term propitiation, the the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus uh, that, that stands in our place 
to satisfy the demands of justice and allows our sins to be forgiven. Paul eventually, a couple chapters later, explains it this way in Romans 5. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So just in the same way that sin took control, Jesus reversed it and broke the control that sin has. Justification came to us the same way our sin nature did, through the actions of one man. The whole human race was caught up in slavery to sin, but now the effects are reversed. Paul says it differently in Acts chapter 13. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This is the reckless love of God that we sing about. It seems irresponsible for the judge to render this sentence, right? I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. The standard of doing the right thing in God's courtroom applies equally to everyone. The verdict is that we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, we're all guilty, but the sentence isn't what we expected. It isn't what we deserved. We are acquitted. We are declared innocent because Jesus paid the price that our sin demands. But the judge isn't finished. Look at Romans 4. As Paul continues his argument, he decides to use an example that the Jewish people will be very familiar with, Abraham. What shall we say then? Uh, What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 16, or 6. It's in Genesis 15. (laughs) Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So these English words, justification and righteousness, they both come from the same word in the Greek. Justification is kind of the verb form of righteousness. So to be justified is that you are, you are righteous, if that makes sense, right? That, that justification means to make righteous. They're from the same word. Um, but how can God do that? How can God declare that we're righteous when we're not? I mean, Paul just spent a bunch of time establishing we're not how can Paul say, or how can God say that we are? When we didn't earn the right to claim that status, uh, how, can God, how can God give us that status? So Paul uses Abraham as an example, that because Abraham trusted in God, God credited him with righteousness. God justified Abraham because he believed, not because he did anything to earn it. 
He believed God, and that was enough for God to credit his account with righteousness. And then Paul goes on to talk about like work and wages, right? When you work, your, your compensation is calculated based on you know, however much you agreed on that you were going to make per hour minus whatever taxes are there. And then we arrive at the wages that you earned. You're paid for the work that you did based on the, the contract or agreement or whatever it is. Uh, you get your wages. But when you're justified without work, that's not wages. That's not compensation. That's just a free gift. That's just something that's been given to you. You didn't earn it. Uh, you, you couldn't really negotiate it, right? And, and so when Abraham believed God and trusted in God, God credited his account with righteousness, with something he didn't earn, God gave it. And then verse 24 of, of Romans 4 promises that God does the same for us, for, for you and me. This wasn't just for Abraham because he was a giant in the faith. Remember, he didn't earn it. God gave it. God credited his account. And so the act of justification, it's not just God announcing that sinners aren't sinners anymore. Um, what God does in justification actually changes our status. He actually makes us righteous by crediting the righteousness of Jesus to us. Maybe if you've been in church for any length of time, maybe you've heard the definition that when God justifies us, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's cute. That's a cute turn of phrase. It's not exactly right. And if we're honest, we know it's not exactly right because we remember sinning. The idea that God just pretends it didn't happen feels wrong to us. I remember it happening. I remember doing that. I remember the guilt I felt after doing it. I remember it. So to say that, oh, it's just as if it didn't happen, it, that feels too flippant. I think, I think it's more than that. It makes me think of a time uh, in our kids' own ministry years ago when I caught a, a kindergarten student doing something that he should not be doing. And, and when I called him on it, to correct that behavior, he tried to gaslight me and convince me that it didn't really happen, but I was dreaming. <laughs> I said, I didn't do that. You dreamed that. I'm awake. <laughs> and he goes, daydream. <laughs> it was great. Listen, God isn't gaslighting you with justification. God isn't pretending like you never sinned. We did sin. We do sin. But the penalty is paid. See, there's two ways a person can be righteous. A person can be righteous where they never violated the law with their actions, where they didn't do anything wrong. If you didn't do anything wrong, you're righteous. But you can also be righteous another way. A person can also be righteous once the penalty for their violation is fully paid. So a person who doesn't commit a crime is righteous. And a person who does commit a crime and serves the full penalty is also righteous. Based on the definition of the word, they are made right. It is paid for. It is atoned. It is, it's done. Justice has been served. Their status is restored. Have you ever spent the day working outside 
uh, on a project. And, and by the end of the day, you're, you're just covered in dirt and, and sweat and grime. Uh, so you go inside to take a shower to, to wash off all the, the filth and get clean again, right? And then after your shower, you see yourself in the mirror. Do you think, holy cow, it's just as if I'd never been dirty. It's magic, <laughs> magic water. Or do, you th- or do you thank God for modern plumbing and hot water and soap that's powerful enough to get you clean again? I remember being dirty, that happened. But it didn't define me as my permanent identity. I am not permanently dirty, there's a shower. There's a way to get clean again. Jesus is righteous because he's innocent. Jesus fits the first category. He didn't do anything wrong. He's righteous because he's innocent. You and I are righteous because our penalty is paid in full. The penalty for our sin has been served. It's paid. We're not innocent, but we are justified. We are made right in God's eyes. The eternal consequences of our sinful actions are canceled by the righteousness that God has credited to our account. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't experience any consequences for our sins. I think we get confused sometimes here where, you know, we've been justified, we've been made righteous. Why do I feel like God is punishing me? Well, because sins still have consequences. The eternal consequences are paid for, but we still experience physical death, that, that sin brings, that's not gone yet. Uh, we, we still experience other elements of the curse in Genesis chapter three. If I, if I hurt you, if I say something or do something that hurts you and later I repent, I can be forgiven, but you're not suddenly unhurt just because I've been forgiven. There is a consequence to my sin. Even after I'm justified, there are, there are consequences, there are immediate consequences, even though the eternal consequences are forgiven, are, are gone. But don't confuse temporary consequences with eternal guilt. You have been declared justified. You have been made right in God's eyes. And even though you do, you do wrong things and those things have consequences that hurt others and hurt yourself, the eternal consequences of those actions are, are, are paid for. When we accept Jesus, the Bible says that we are unified with him. That's how this works. It's like a marriage where where two people become one in the eyes of the law. They they merge their assets and their liabilities. When Sarah and I got married, I didn't have any student loans to pay, but she did. And so once our status changed to married filing jointly, the government didn't care that the loan was in her name originally. It became my responsibility also. The money we make is ours, and the money we owe is ours. And it's the same idea in our relationship with Jesus. When God looks at a believer, he doesn't see that person alone. He sees the believer together with Jesus, sharing the righteousness that Jesus earned, sharing the forgiveness that Jesus paid for on the cross. Righteousness from God, it's not just an idea. It's not just a concept. It's a person. Jesus is righteousness from God. The law leads us to Jesus by proving to us that we can't be righteous on our own. We need rescue, and Jesus can offer our salvation. Jesus can offer rescue, and he's the only one who can. 
we like to think of ourselves as the judge in the courtroom of our life. We decide who deserves to be forgiven. We decide who deserves to be canceled. We hear about things that happened in the world, on the news, or through social media, and we decide who's right and who's wrong. We form opinions on the punishment that, uh, what the punishment should be for the person that we think is wrong, and we get outraged when their actual punishment is less than, than we feel that they deserve. And, and we even pretend that we're in a position to, to judge God's actions sometimes. We, we argue about whether he exists, or whether he's good, or why he allows certain things to happen. But we can't justify our own actions by judging other people. It doesn't work. It's it's just smoke and mirrors. A day is coming when God will take up his judge's robes and he will perform this function once and for all, the function that only he is qualified to do. He will judge us based on our actions, based on whether our works have been good or evil. And spoiler alert, They haven't been good. All have sinned and fall short. We're afraid. We're afraid to let God be the judge because deep down, we know what the judgment will be. But then something surprising happens. The verdict is in. We're guilty. And then God steps off the bench. He takes off the judge's robes. He sits next to you. He offers to share everything with you as long as you share everything with him. He offers to join with you. He takes your sin. You get his righteousness. That's justification. Let's pray. God, it's too good to be true. We still have a really difficult time with this because it feels too good to be true. How how could there be any kind of arrangement where I can set aside my guilt and shame where you actually will take it from me and in return I get something so unbelievably good, so unbelievably undeserved? How could it be? Father, I just pray that as we enter into a time of communion, as we enter into a time of reflecting on what you did through your son Jesus, I just pray that we would trust you. Even if we don't understand how can this be, that we would trust you as the one who is righteous, as the one who is innocent, as the only one with the power uh, to offer justification to us. I just pray for trust in you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. That last verse that we read in Romans 4 leads our thoughts into communion this morning, that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The the penalty for our sin had to be paid, but Jesus paid it all. And then he defeated the enslaving power of our sin nature by his resurrection. So he paid for our sin, and then he shattered the power of sin on top of it. And when we join our lives with his life, we are justified. We are declared righteous because our sins are paid for. It's not that they don't exist. It's that they're paid for. And so that's why we take time every single week at Northwest to, to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Because it's too easy to forget our place. We're not the judge in that courtroom. But we are also not condemned. We are justified. We are made right 
and we're called to move forward in grace and in truth. And so when the tray passes by, take a set of cups and hold on to them until we can take communion together. His body given for us and his blood poured out for our sin. Justification is good news, but it's, it's just the start. It's at the beginning. There's more to come. Once God declares that our sin is paid for, that we are made righteous, that's not the end. Uh, we continue to live life, and Paul continues through Romans to talk about what that looks like. And so next week, we're going to continue working through the book of Romans to find out what God has in mind for us next once he's made us righteous. Uh, why don't we stand and sing one last song this morning as we're dismissed.